0: Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. If you would like to turn with me to Psalm 14, when you guys are there, I ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. That's Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation Of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. You may sit. Before we begin, I'd like to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how awesome you are and merciful to us that we can come to you in prayer and gather as believers like this. We ask that you would, uh, your will would be done here, that you would use us to build your kingdom. We ask that you would speak to us today, through your word, that you would strengthen us for the journey ahead, and that you would work in us with what the text has to say. Dear God, I ask that you would forgive us for the sins of this week, and allow us to be a people who are changed and living fully in the joy of our salvation. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So, my name is uh, Keith. For you who don't know me, um, I lead the youth uh, here, and uh, I was asked to speak on uh, Psalm 14. And I was, I was, uh, I'm very excited to have this privilege to be here to do this today. So, if for a second before I'd like to start, I'd like to point something out. If you leave your thumbs in chapter 14 uh, and you flip over to chapter 53 you'll notice the chapters are almost identical. This was a shock to me. (laughs) They have a few uh, small differences. Some of the differences in 14, it starts off to the choir choir director of David, whereas Psalm 53 is to the choir master according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. The two Psalms would have a different tune associated with them, so that would have been how they would have sung them or perhaps the, the, the tone that they would have been sung in. Another difference is near the end of Psalm 14, it focuses on God's deliverance for those who are righteous, whereas in 53, it has a bit more attention to the destruction of the wicked. The third difference will be the use of God's name. Throughout 14, we see that the name uh, Yahweh gets used, or Lord, in our English translations, whereas in Psalm 53, we use the name God, or in places, the original translation, Elohim. Psalm 14 is a lament. It's about the persecution of the godly and how mankind treats God's people. But one that starts and ends with a trust and hope in God who is sovereign and who will bring them salvation. The start goes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first thing that pops out to me in this verse is how it reminds me that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The statement alone isn't one strictly saying that only self-proclaimed atheists are the fools, which would be true. However, it does go deeper. It speaks to how we live as well. Are we living as if we're morally culpable to God? So what does it mean to be a fool? Is foolishness not getting a good grade? Is it a charge on one's intellect, their level, their IQ? No, the scriptures place it as a moral charge. There are a couple of ways to look at foolishness. In scriptures, Proverbs 18 verse 2 says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. There's a sense in which he's not pursuing truth or knowledge. He only trusts in himself in this instance. So, if the fool says there is no God, he isn't even acting in the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, and what he is relying on is his own understanding So no, there are people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is not an idiot. He majored in physics in Harvard. He earned a master's degree in astronomy from the University of Texas and went to New York and earned his PhD in astrophysics. Neil deGrasse Tyson does not believe there is a God, not to mention the real one who is described in scriptures. In turn, he lives as if there is no God. With that, I would never charge him of being stupid or an idiot. In the brain sense, however, there's a real sense in which the scriptures would call him a fool. Are you starting to see the difference? He rejects God, and in turn, he lives as if there is no God to rule over him. He denies evidence for such a creator. He suppresses the truth every day when he sees his own face in the mirror. He calls it nothing more than a cosmic accident. When I was in Red River a few levels back, we had a test The teacher was handing it out. It was electrical and math combined together. And the test, so naturally there's Ohm's law and power law. So there was, we talk about amperes. So my teacher, he'd walk around the classroom and he was passing the test. And he'd be,
1: amp it up, amp
0: it up, amp it up. And he was just building it up to this, this big elaborate thing. And he's getting everyone all excited and stuff. And he starts looking on the tests and he gets a little quieter and a little quieter and then he starts to take back a couple of the papers and then you hear him whispering to himself, a bit down, a bit down. And then he goes back, he sits down in the front of the classroom, he kind of stares at the wall. You can tell he's thinking. And all of a sudden he smiles. He looks, he looks up from his chair, he looks at us and he says, I don't think I taught this correctly. <laughs> or whatever the test was, he, he, didn't, he didn't explain it right. And... He said, I think we'll have to go over this again and we'll do the test tomorrow. If I was to make an assumption here, I'm sure many people who are required to take a test on something that has not been revealed to them would say they have a genuine excuse. And to a degree, there is a case of a classroom test. A teacher who had not taught something uh, then requires a student to test on it. Yes, there would be an, an element of excuse. Hold on to that thought. When those who proclaim with their actions or words that there is no God, in particular the true God of the Bible, I suspect there's a feeling of we're off the hook because of insufficient evidence. Whether or not the atheists say it, they almost act as though there's insufficient proof of God. They may put God on the witness stand and should not be responsible for their sin. I want to propose there might be a collective subconscious thought. What if when we look to each other and at each other claiming side by side that there is no God maybe cheer each other on in our false enlightenment with the attitude of the teacher can't get us all in trouble at once or maybe if we all missed it maybe it's the teacher's fault I, I don't recall if my teacher had properly equipped us or if we failed to grasp it or if he forgot to teach that portion of the test altogether however our God has given us all sufficient proof we suppress the truth and have been given over to a depraved mind. With that, there is a degree of accountability of level of knowledge and understanding, but again, there is sufficient knowledge. As Romans 1, verse 20 to 23 says, which Don had read part of this morning, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse for although they knew God, and side note, I'd argue in the sense not as a savior, but the way that the demons know him, continuing, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So, unlike the students in my class, we are fully equipped and we are held accountable. But will and inf- God will in fact judge us righteously by his perfect standards, but the wicked, they judge and make decisions as if there is no God. The one without God ironically makes and presses many moral charges upon the believer to appeal to nothing more than their preferences of their heart to claim that all we stand for is unjust. The wicked say that our God isn't loving because he won't allow them to live however they feel like that God isn't blending with their idolatrous views of love, which water down the word to mean nothing more than aimless lusts, contrary to what God's reality says. They say there is no God. With their words and actions, they say God's unjust. They hate that he won't turn a blind eye to their sin. They cry, unfair, because we were born that way. On top of that, if we Christians have the audacity to say that Christ is the only way, then we are the hateful ones. Hateful for not bowing to the religion of tolerance, which ironically, by their own requirements alone, they fail, and whose law is blind to its own hypocrisy, because empty tolerance of evil is intolerant of that which is good. And without God, what is wrong with hypocrisy? They only push a moral charge as an objection and claim it as truth when it benefits themselves. So, as believers we need to remember that all truth is God's created truth. There are no neutral facts. What someone believes or suppresses about reality does not make it go away. With our knowledge of the truth and understanding, let us not become arrogant about this. But we need to remember that it wasn't us being smart enough to figure it out. It's because what we have has been revealed to us, which we will get humbled by when we read 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But remember that all we have... Is enough understanding to be held accountable? It's our blackened hearts that hate God that make us hate the truth. So let's not grant the unbeliever or even ourselves too quickly this hall pass because he doesn't believe there's an overseer. Believers, stop letting unbelievers dictate the playing field of the qualifications for evidence under their referees. Yes, we have enough knowledge to give account, and there is a time and place for doing that. But ultimately. They are ultimately left stealing from our worldview by even claiming a semblance of right and wrong. I believe they claim there is right and wrong because they are made in the image of God. They were born with a conscience. However, it gets colder and darker as they stay in sin with time. Evidence for knowledge of a creator or the knowledge of right and wrong shows itself when they appeal to things being unjust or that injustice even exists. They do this because they recognize the need for justice. It's in their very bones. But their sinful nature has corrupted it. has flipped it on its head. They make these claims about how unjust the triune God is. A fool can lay a thousand objections in the time it takes for us to answer one. I don't remember who uh, who quoted that, but I, I read something to the effect of that. That's just the, due to the nature of how questions and answers work. The fool can keep answering the fool will keep answering your response with more folly. So, absolutely, give reason for your hope. But don't leave a fool in his folly either. Otherwise, he will see himself as wise, or others will be deceived, thinking that his objections may not be answered. We see in Proverbs 26, verses 4 to 5, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But remember, you must point to the heart and its a problem that is under the curse. Romans 2, verses 12 to 15 says, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified." For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, and though the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They will be guilty by their own conscience, so don't be ashamed of the gospel. Preach its words to them, for the word of God is a living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Know that the gospel has power, so Christian, please do not be ashamed of the gospel and use it, preach it. We need to remember that all authority on heaven and earth is Christ's and that we appeal to his victory when we share the gospel Remember, ultimately, it is also the Holy Spirit that must do the heart transplant within them, as he did with us. We don't always get to see the fruits of our showing the gospel. Often we leave seemingly no different, or sometimes they seem to leave with maybe a rock in their shoe, but that is about the extent of it. But I think an honest analysis of one's own rejection of the good news is by the author of the book, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. He is quoted to have said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for the assumption the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he should he, should, he personally should do as he wants to do. For myself is no doubt... For most of my friends, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of the system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was an admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world has any meaning whatsoever. He was honest about his presuppositions. After much suppression of the truth, never, he never admitted to knowing or acknowledging God, in this quote, but in a backwards way he did. He knew if he could philosophically convince himself that he had to use his own mental gymnastics, that is, he could pretend with a slightly nummer conscience that there is no authority in which he is accountable to. He goes as far as, is mentioned in the very acts and sins that he craves, that an obligation uh, to cease from uh, would exist if he uh, acknowledged a creator. There is an important distinction to be made. I'm not talking about a belief in a God. I'm referring to the God. Again, the psalm is not about general theism. Many of us would be Happily worship our false deities who are impotent, but to live as to reject the real creator is the one who is the fool who does not do good. So, like the first verse teaches us, the fool is corrupt and does abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The status of the heart of the fool who lives as if there is no God is against him in every way. He is unable to do good. I talked about this ad nauseum last time. I spoke, so I won't go too far into it, but I think it is an important reminder to address that Romans 8, verse 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, so that's anyone who's not in Christ, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Moving on, in verse 2, when it says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, the footnote in my text says, or that act wisely. Again, going back to foolishness being a moral stance, a stance that lacks reverence for God. When we read the Lord looks down from heaven, it gives us a reminder of his authority over us. It's actually hilarious that we think we could even begin to judge him. When the people built the Tower of Babel, the Lord had to come down to see it. The language almost mocks and taunts the way of saying how small they really are and comparison to his grandeur of his creation and all that he has made and not to mention that the people who built the tower they had to use the very material that god himself had spoken into existence they're like the toddler who hit mom or dad in anger only to realize that they have little to no strength reach or ability the difference is the chasm between man and god is an infinite chasm we can't even scowl at our creator whom we hate without him sustaining the very reality that we live in. So when the Lord looks down on man, he sees not only that they don't have fear of the Lord, but they are fools. They think they can harm him. Only when we realize that our sticks and our bows can't reach far enough that we have to attack his image bearers. So like Matt had brought up the other month, we need to make an an effigy to unleash our hatred on. When we sin against one another, we are telling a lie about God. When we murder, we say we hate him. When we commit adultery, we lie about Christ's love for his bride or who the bride is to him. Interesting note on the side, that we all recognize the need for blood for sins. We all inherently know that payment is required. We rely on the blood of Christ, and the fool's hatred and misguided anger believes it is God who needs to pay. That's why we treat each other the way that we do. So the man who hates God will have to settle for killing the image. Both the Jews and the unbelievers had their sacrifice. Both God's people, Christ became for, for God's people, Christ became accursed for us, taking upon our sins to cover our debt to God. However, for the unbelievers who hate God, they live as if he is the one who needs to pay. So when Christ came, they killed him. God who went into his very own story, handed over his son to merciless men who wanted to take their wrath out on him. Both parties had their sacrifice that day. Only one was efficacious, righteous, and in submission to the Father. The other was impotent, evil, and in submission to their own desires. The people didn't reject Christ because they loved God. They killed Christ because he blasphemed the God that the people made up in their own hearts. Verse 2 continues, and then I'm going to expand to verse 3. To see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. When he looks down, he saw them all together were corrupt. There was none who does good, not even one. Paul later addresses this in uh, Romans 3 when he says, Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God, for all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That just shows us how much we need that heart transplant, how much it's not, it's not our doing when we repent and put our trust in Christ. It's, it's, his, it's his work in us. Verses four to six. Have they no knowledge... All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. This almost wants to reveal the trajectory of their very own ways. As we have seen in previous verses, and these verses as well, it shows the wickedness of their ways, showing the persecution they practice against the people of God. They eat up people as if they would eat bread. God's people say eat bread. That's such a bizarre statement. But we also see that language get used in Proverbs. Proverbs 4, verse 17, it says, For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The wicked's ways and the path that they lead on lead them to hunger. That is a destructive hunger, and they need to be filled by it. Those of you who are um, humans, like myself, Uh, know that we can't just eat food once. It's a daily thing. It's not one and done. Our desire for food, it returns. Bread gets talked about a lot throughout the scriptures. We see in John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. When a believer prays the Lord's prayer, we ask for our daily bread. We see manna coming from heaven daily for the Israelites in the desert. But ultimately, we see that unlike manna, those who eat the bread of life will live forever. John 6 verse 58 and then also, we rely not on ourselves, but daily on the word and that which is given to us by Christ. Our justification we receive once, but our sanctification is a process that we receive daily, and we get our strength from Christ daily. While our justification is a given status, our sanctification is a lifetime. He doesn't give us a super potent uh, dose of Lambus bread. I don't know if people know what that is. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, there's. This, uh, I got a thumbs up back there. <laughs> it's essentially a bread that can, you take a bite and it fills the stomach of a full-grown man. But no, it is not that. It says, he, uh, he gives us bread daily for the journey. Hence, we eat bread at communion in remembrance of him on the Lord's day. But the wicked consume men as they would bread. The adversaries of God's people consume their wealth and possibly their lives. The Matthew-Henry commentary suggests It's like meat and drink to them. Their wickedness causes their persecution to be as agreeable to them as food is for them. And they do not call upon the Lord. They consume the Lord's people as if there is no Lord at all. All their ways are evil. They do not rely on God in prayer or strength, but rely on their evil deeds. Then moving on to verse five, the danger and folly of their ways. There they are in great terror, For God is with the generation of the righteous. Their hearts are full of terror and fear inside. But why is that? The verse itself says, For God is with the generation of the righteous. Even after suppressing the truth for a lie, we cannot escape judgment. Some people are content in their folly and have suppressed the truth enough. But ultimately, every man knows his days are numbered. Even the demons shudder. The terror they have of judgment is different than the fear that leads to righteous, the righteous to wisdom. It's done while they shame the plans of the poor. They shame God's people. And where the danger is, the ones whom they shame take refuge in the Lord. It is a fearful thing to desire to bring harm to God's people. Think of all the Egyptians who are consumed by God's judgment in the sea. Or think of Matthew 18.6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Or God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, I will make all the families, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So going back to the beginner, beginning of the chapter, can we see the foolishness of the man who is in great terror yet? He lives like he is not accountable to God. That, my friends, is foolish. So how about us? Do we carry on our weeks, days, not getting our strength from God's word in our reading or in our prayers? But are we filling with anger of those around us? Are we hating and cursing their name under our breath because they inconvenienced us? Or are we fearing God and taking refuge in him? I remember when I was uh, a kid going to McDonald's, there was one time, I don't remember if it was in the ball pit or if it started in one of those tubes, but a a big kid came and tried to take my socks. (laughs) And I was very, very upset. I was probably kicking and screaming at them, and I mustered up this curse that I I was going to throw at them. I knew it would hurt their soul. I I called them a pull-up, like like the diaper. (laughs) I... I knew it would work. I, I kicked a lot. It was to no avail. They grabbed my legs and they took my socks. But I know who to go to. I went to my mom <laughs> because some big scary kid took my socks but my mom took care of it. I thankfully don't think snitches get stitches applied to children at McDonald's but even a child, he knows where to take refuge. I uh, I wasn't going to share this but I was like, you got to share it. it was It was a girl. (laughs) But she was a lot older, okay? She was probably like 30, I don't know. (laughs) I heard Matt quote this a while back during the 16th century when John Knox's preaching and prayers were well known throughout the Scottish Reformation. Mary, Queen of Scots, is reputed to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. I don't believe that that fear is misguided at all. Christians and our households are one of the biggest threats to the ways of evil men, and that includes our prayers. We can de- devastate the future of all forms of evil by our obedience and prayer and raising godly children. In godly obedience and maternity, when we get accused of all forms of closed-mindedness or forms of malice, it can mean one of two things. So learn which one you are so you can fight with joy and a good conscience. one, You may be legitimately guilty of those things. Or two, you're on the right path and you're a threat that needs to be cut at the knees. So false accusations may be used against you. Communism, feminism, secularism, and many of the other evil isms that are rooted in sin cannot survive due to their fruitless nature. But they subconsciously or consciously know that we actually produce fruit and their very heritage is castrated by its own methods which leads me back to the point of not just a danger to our enemies, but there is a comfort to God's people in these verses. Verse six, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. What a statement to be made. What a worthless pursuit to fight the God of the universe by attacking the very ones that he loves. He died for those people. How much more could anyone love someone? Now imagine that love being a place for you. I found some passages that talked about this, and I'm just going to read them off here. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Imagine a good father who is infinitely more holy and without sin, showing a real compassion to us who fear him, who are his children. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Brothers and sisters, whom and what shall we fear? These verses aren't just nice quotes to tell your children when they're scared, but they certainly should be that. These Truths are as real as the very solid floor you walk on. These truths proclaimed by the same God who was able to make our world using his words. And his words have also claimed something about the relationship between him and us. His people. That is one of grace, mercy, compassion, and a place of refuge. So let that sink in for a second. His words declare the very reality that we exist in. And then he tells his bride how much he loves her with those very same words, that should hit hard. God is not giving empty words. He cannot lie. The truth about what he says about anything is as real as life itself and is in no way less true and can never be changed. We are so used to people in our lives exaggerating or not following through. People have said to one another, I love you, and then show something completely different with their actions. That is not our God. That is not our strong tower. Seasons and circumstances do not change the word that he has revealed to us in his scriptures. Then verse seven in our chapter today. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Here David's praying for the deliverance that God has promised his people. Some say David wrote this when Saul persecuted him others when Absalom rebelled against him. It's not clear what the circumstances are here that David's talking about, but regardless, David was looking forward to a promised salvation for Israel. It's a prayer for deliverance from the enemies. And whether or not the author has realized it, the text here also points to Christ coming like he had promised so many times, Christ coming like it was promised so many times before. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, Throughout the text, we see this language get used from time to time. In fact, it's actually permeated throughout the text. I believe this text to be more than just a one-and-done with patches of land in the Middle East, but not excluding that for sure. There's There's a way in which God is orchestrating creation and restoring it to all his children. We see this in passages like Proverbs 13, verse 22, which says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. This can be applied in the micro sense of the passage, which is true that a good man does leave an inheritance to his children's children. But on the macro sense, we see that our heavenly father is leaving us the earth. The wicked's wealth is being laid up for us. On the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And I think this pattern has been clearly seen throughout the texts. Proverbs 10, verse 23 to 30, in particular, verses 30, that language of remaining and fruitful continuation in righteousness and the dead end path that is sin. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Matthew 7:19 talks about a very good tree that does not bear, that every good tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In the same way, We have the same element of being cut off from the church and church discipline, not taking not partaking the Lord's Supper, and not getting blessed by God's many gifts to us. Or the fruits of the Spirit, and to the Son who rebels against his father will be cut off and cast out. But the inheritance are to God's children. And finally, the psalm ends with a proclamation of joy and hope. Let Israel be glad, let Jacob be glad. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. With that, brothers and sisters, let us be joyful in knowing our salvation and hope is in Christ, our Redeemer, who came and bought us. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how amazing you are that you would reveal so much about yourself to us and promise to be with those who call upon you. We ask that your will would be done here and that you would continue to work the gospel into every corner and that we use us to build your kingdom. We ask that you would give us strength every day as we go out this week, that we would take refuge in you and be in your word and equipped by it. Help us be a joyful people in the forgiveness of our sins. Please continue to work in us and change us to be more like you. Thank you for speaking through your psalmist, David. Please be with us as we leave for this week and use us for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Stand... Okay. Charge here. Nope. Well, the charge is this. You are to live in the full realization that you are accountable to God. So do not continue to live in sin and treat salvation as a license to do whatever you want. Ask God for wisdom because he will give it to those who ask. With that, live in the joy of your salvation knowing that if you have repented and put your trust in Christ, that you may take refuge in the creator of the universe to whom we are all accountable to. Go to God with your anxieties like the psalmist does and take shelter in him. And with that, I leave you the benediction from Hebrews 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will